And we're live. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the two Abdullahs. It's been way too long, way too long. So we have <laughs> sort of disappeared for a while. And now we're back and we're going to try to do this more often. So we have a really interesting episode for you today. You are not going to you are going to regret missing this if you log off. Don't log <laughs> off. Stay on. Wait and see what we have for you today. Gondal, how's it going? Hello, everybody. How's it going? It's been a while. I hope everybody can hear me fine. Uh, everybody's been wondering where I have been. I disappeared off the scene, you know, not making any videos or any content, really. Uh, but don't worry, I was really busy. Uh, I have something in the works. Uh, it's going to be very interesting. It's almost at the same quality of the uh, Epileptic Prophet, but you don't want to miss it. Um, I have been reading, uh, doing lots of research and have some very, very interesting content got uh, ready for you guys. And as you'll see today, uh, we'll show you a glimmer of that, the type of research that I'm now involved in, uh, what the scope of the uh, next few uh, years is going to look like for us. Anyways, over to you, Samir, if you want to uh, introduce anything else uh, before we jump right into the slides. Uh, no, I think it's good. Just uh, happy to be doing this again. And uh, hopefully this is a good time for everyone. Obviously, we're going to end up excluding some people and uh, including some people. So it is what it is. Mm -hmm. uh, let me see about sharing the slide news layout. Okay, there we go. Perfect. All righty. I'm going to go and start. Uh, so today's topic is going to be very interesting. Uh, it's going to be about Islam, evolution, and anthropology. Uh, the reasoning being is uh, in the past uh, what year or so, I've been reading a lot of books on evolutionary biology, Richard Dawkins, and a bunch of others, Daniel Dennett. Uh, apart from that, uh, a lot of uh, anthropological books as well. One that stands out is uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared Diamond. And honestly, after reading a, a lot of these books, you realize that uh, human beings are essentially an animal that is expressing a behavior which in terms uh, turns into uh, religion and group dynamics. And it's completely uh, changed my view of how I perceive religion uh, from the perspective of evolutionary biology. So it's very interesting. So we're going to get into a bunch of those things. But before that, I have some announcements to make. I'm going to be releasing all of my slides, as in there's over 1,000 plus slides. Uh, that's the work of me and Samir for the past, I think, I don't even know, for a while, past five years or so. Uh, but yeah, so overview, we're going to be doing that. We're going to show you where you can get those slides, uh, download them. They're all in PDF format. Then another very, very interesting uh, thing that's come up is the Epileptic Prophet 2nd Edition. So as you all might be aware, the first initial series, a seven-part series, 20 hours in duration, uh, was aired in September 2021. It's coming up to two years now. We've had ample time for any criticisms, uh, any objections to be brought up. And honestly, I've gone through all of them. So I've updated a lot of content in there, uh, as in there's about 70 odd plus new slides, videos, papers, uh, very, very robust. And I actually included a surprise at the end as well for you guys. Anyways, after that, we're going to discuss uh, why Richard Dawkins is famous. It's not because of the God delusions. And in fact, the God delusion, I didn't even read it yet. 
I didn't bother reading it. I read his Selfish Gene. That's the book that put him on the map in 1976. And honestly, it's one of the most important books written in in in, in the scientific community deemed by the Royal Society. Um, it totally upturned uh, biology upside down on its head. Uh, and I think it's a must, must, must read uh, if you ever want to truly understand how evolution works. This book here, Guns, Germs, and Steel, very fascinating. Uh, it's a series of three, four books. Uh, this guy, Jared Diamond, does a fantastic job at summarizing the past 13,000 years, the variables, the dynamics between different tribes, communities, how and why we are living in the world we have right now. Very, very fascinating. We'll get to that as well. And we're going to cover some global Islamic demographics because I told you that this is a video that's going to be talking about anthropology and evolution. So we're, uh, we're going to get into some uh, demographics about beliefs, education levels of Muslims, stuff like that. Then we're going to go over religion and intelligence, which uh, has been studied from a scientific perspective. I have, I think, like three or four papers to show you guys that uh, concludes that there is, in fact, an inverse relationship, which means that the more religious you are, the less intelligent you will be. So that's the correlation they found. Uh, the other thing, the main focus, what I want to do tonight is I want to drive home a point, uh, which is going to be about evolutionary stable strategies and uh, Muslims becoming one of the biggest victims of Islam. And we're going to go into a statistical analysis of Islamic violence as well. Um, and then at the end, we're going to talk about what's going on in the world right now with the freedom of speech and the uh, Quran burnings happening in Sweden, Denmark, etc. But before we proceed with this overview, go back to Samir. If any questions, any other uh, things he wants me to point out before we nope. go into deep. Let's get into it. It's all good. All righty. Actually, let me say one more thing. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> go for I had it. the exact same experience as you. I never did God delusion. I was just like, I, mm -hmm. you know what? Like, because other stuff is so much better. The selfish gene, blind watchmaker. And mm -hmm. one of one of the amazing things about Richard Dawkins is that someone without a science background, someone like me, can actually easily understand the concepts. And like I'm telling you, when I'm talking to people about evolution, mm -hmm. the points from his book, The Greatest Show on Earth, they keep coming back mm -hmm. over and over again. Like if he talks about the the experiment, the E. coli experiment. He talks about intermediate species. He talks about fossils. He talks about um you know all of the common you know why is this still monkeys <laughs> evolved mm -hmm. from monkeys right like mm -hmm. it's it's just if you if you know whenever someone wants to debate evolution i always ask them like have you read anything mm -hmm. if not mm -hmm. why are you talking to me <laughs> like go and go and read some books mm -hmm. on it and then if you don't like it i mean if then if you have some actual points to respond <laughs> okay then we can talk but and and then even then it's like why are you talking to me Go talk to a biologist. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Give me and, a break, right? and honestly, like you said with uh, with Dawkins, like you need to read him for his biology books. Like when you read books like The Selfish Gene, The Blind Watchmaker, uh, The Greatest Show on Earth, uh, The Extended Phenotype, it is truly then when you see Dawkins in his, you know, uh, the knight in shining armor. But I'm going to be very straight up. Out of all the books I have read in my life, which is about three, four hundred books. The Selfish Gene is one of the most profound books that I have 
ever read and we will get into that in a little bit completely like pulled a rug under my feet honestly but uh yeah uh let's get to it oh i see there's a question uh <laughs> All right. Stop scamming Scott. Yeah, I guess uh, thank you to um, everyone that's already donated. Zagros, Denver Johnson, thank and Stop so Scamming Man. And again, Denver Johnson, again, most most appreciated. Thank you um, so much. Said, uh, we will get to uh, all your questions at the end for sure. Oh, I think I'm... Uh, am I lagging or are you lagging? Okay, I think we lost uh, Gondol. Can, if you guys can still see me, uh, please say something because it looks like Abdullah Gondal got frozen. And um, can you guys still? Okay. Okay. So it's just Abdullah Gondal has gone. Okay. So let me, let me check in with that. And while we're doing that, I just want to show this on the screen. Uh, not sure if you know this, ex-Muslim movement is gaining massive ground in India. We happen to have the third largest Muslim population of the world. Oh, you're back. Okay. Yeah. I don't know what happened there, but there was a certain, certain type of interruption. Sorry about that. Uh, yep, but no let's worries. get back to it yeah yep let's get back to it all right i might be experiencing some bad weather guys so do i do apologize for that <laughs> the uh, global warming and the weather patterns are completely wild these days like uh so yeah sorry about that but anyways let's get to it can you still hear me all righty uh so these are the slides uh we're gonna be releasing uh for everybody for free um so there's going to be the second edition of the Epileptic Prophet, which is about 504 slides. There's this book by Dede Kurkut that I've scanned out the relevant parts. I've also uh, included the older version of the Epileptic Prophet. So you can have a comparison new to old. This is another book, Sword and Seizure on the Epilepsy of Muhammad by Dr. Abbas, which is included. Uh, then we have this slideshow, 101 slides. This is a slideshow, I think, that I did with the... Pasir Prophet has about 100,000 plus views on that stream. That's the infamous holes in the Quran narrative. Uh, and my best buddy, Farid. <laughs> uh, then we have Circus of Islam. That's a very good one for seeing the uh, funny side of Islam, the comedy side. Uh, the Psychotic Prophet was the first stream we did regarding Muhammad's mental health. And this is the Quran preserved, I think, from 2018 or 19. And then uh, there's Hadood, there's Genies, there's Blasphemy in Islam, Heaven, Convenient Revelations, Hell in Islam, Scandals of Aisha, Slavery, and at the end there's Surah Darwin. Uh, so basically all these uh, slides uh, are in a PDF format, so you can still uh, see them interact with all the screenshots. Uh, but the uh, videos uh, that are embedded in them, they won't play at the set times. Uh, so for the best wing experience, just download the slides and watch them along the videos. All righty. Uh, but yeah, this is all free for you. Like I think this is five years of mine and some years work that we're just giving out to you guys, like spread it, share it. And they're PDFs, so they're not too big as in like file sizes. You can easily print them out as well. And I can, and you can compress them as well. All righty. Let's go to the next slide. See if there's anything else going on in the chat. All right. So uh, what is up with the second edition of the Epileptic Prophet? So like I said, it's been two years, uh, enough time for criticisms to come up, objections. So what I did is I 
go, looked over all the Farid objections, a couple other people that I found online, and I incorporated answers to their objections with screenshots, scientific analysis, et cetera, in this new edition. Uh, there are actually a total of 63 new slides, uh, new sections, never before seen evidence. And the best part I did for you guys, I included a mathematical model for statistical analysis to prove Muhammad had epilepsy. We might even show that it's very, very interesting where the chances of him not being epileptic are like one in 1,000 or one in 100,000, depending on the type of calculation. Um, the other thing is like I'm this confident now in the hypothesis that he had epilepsy or the theory that I'm putting a challenge out there to any serious uh, Muslim academics or anybody who really wants to sit down, discuss, or refute the epileptic prophet series, which includes uh, properly addressing the argument and not doing We're using 10 slides to make a point and he'll just show one slide and say, oh, he doesn't know anything. Um, so the other option thing I wanted to ask you uh, is a lot of people have been saying that the series is 20 hours long. So some of them want me to redo the series in a more condensed format. That's one option. Uh, the other option would be that I can edit into a, a long multi-episode mini series and then upload it as edited videos. And then we can make that into a series. So I'm going to go to the comments, uh, stake some people's opinions, what they would want or suggest. So um, maybe just turn off your camera just for a little bit because it looks like you're a little bit lagging still. Okay, give me one second. Try putting it back on. Um, so S-Man is saying don't condense it. So I'll, I'll create. So the question is, should we, what was the question? Let, let me make, a, I'll make a poll. That's actually a good idea, yeah. We can make so a poll. Do, you, do we want to do we want to know whether we want to redo the series, small edited videos, or mm -hmm. or not not bother? Yeah, yeah. Because okay. honestly, like it's it's such an important it's such an important aspect of religiosity, religions itself, because it doesn't have uh, implications just for Muhammad and Islam. It has implications for almost all other major religions, where we are basically interpreting most of the major world religions as interpretations of possible hallucinatory experiences of people. Uh, but we will definitely get more uh, into this uh, as well. Is my uh, my video and voice okay right now? I'm just going to wait for people to say something. Let's see. All right. So I created a poll. Should we lead with the full F-series? And uh, you can choose whether you think we should go to the whole thing. The, here's what you can think about. If you redo the whole thing, we're going to potentially go to a lot more content in detail and get a lot more exposure to the full series of ideas. Mm -hmm. If you want to vote no, you're, you're on the side of making short clips, like 10 minutes, you know, 5 minutes, 8 minutes, 12 minutes, again, mm -hmm. which is a little bit challenging. It could be a little bit challenging sometimes um, mm -hmm. based on the depth of the topic. But those are the two options. Yeah. Definitely. And at the moment, it's coming out pretty clearly in one one direction. And also, uh, do like the stream. If you are a fan of the two Abdullahs, then like the stream and let's get to as many people as possible. And, All right. Uh, yeah. So right now, the, the results are pretty clear and people are voting yes, redo in full. So that's uh, okay. We'll, we'll leave it. We'll leave the chat, the, the thing open and we'll continue mm -hmm. while we. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah, for think. sure. 
because honestly, yeah, the this uh, theory, I'm, I'll be very honest, like in the first run, uh, there were certain issues where even I caught some of my own mistakes, which I have rectified in the new second edition. There weren't anything big or anything major. It's basically some spelling mistakes and maybe one or two errors. But honestly, uh, would love to do it uh, part uh, this second edition. I would love to even have, you know, somebody like Farid join in and talk to me about the mental hallucinations and, you know, how he interprets them with his religious inclinations or have a Muslim doctor. Like, honestly, like I, because the evidence is so clear that if you show it to a Muslim professional doctor and you ask him, what do you see here? He's bound by his professional uh, knowledge to give you an answer that, OK, this does look like epilepsy and he'll be very hard to uh, flip it the other way. Anyways, uh, with that aside, let's get back to. So let me say one thing. Um, mm -hmm. Someone's saying uh, Malaka Tamilan was saying make an audio version. So if you want to listen to the audio version, you can actually do that on the Friendly Ex Muslim podcast. All of the episodes are there as well. So mm -hmm. say you just want the audio and you don't want to go to YouTube, you can just go to the podcast and all of the, the same content is there, but there's no visuals. So you'll just be mm -hmm. able to listen to it. The other option I was also thinking was we can take the clipping and stuff from the current series that we've already done and then just add additional or edit the current video series out where we need to or add in additional stuff. That is one option as well. Uh, but anyways, we'll let the poll run and figure this out later. Let's get back to the slides. So uh, we're going to be talking about the genius of Richard Dawkins and the selfish gene hypothesis and memes. A lot of people aren't actually aware that the word meme was invented by none other than Richard Dawkins in 1976 when he was discussing evolutionary biology and genes. Now, uh, why is Dawkins famous? The, the thing that put him on the map was in 1976, uh, he said that evolution doesn't actually occur at the level of the individual or the group, which was the predominant theory back then. He said that evolution occurs at the level of the genes. Uh, it is genes that are selected and it is genes that determine what traits get passed on and, and in the future. And the idea what he brings up is like, look around you and you'll see that this whole planet is infected by this uh, double helix molecule called DNA. It's replicating... It's making copies of itself. And what essentially happened is over time, uh, the molecule wanted to survive and enveloped itself in membranes and then in more complex bodies and so on and so forth. Uh, what ends up happening is the survival of, from the genes perspective is the genes are putting themselves in sleeves or bodies. And then once we die, our body dies, but the genes that we have this on. Think of it this way. 99.9% .9 of species that have ever existed uh, are extinct. Okay. Uh, but the one thing that hasn't died on this planet, at least for a few billion years, is DNA. It is such a stable molecule. It is a fascinating molecule that has created these diverse uh, survival machines. Uh, so you're starting to see from this perspective, your whole structure of morality, religion is a, completely changes. Hence, I highly recommend reading this book. And I'll read out this paragraph. Uh, individuals are not 
chromosomes too are shuffled into oblivion like hands of cards soon after they're dealt. But the cards themselves survive the shuffle. Sorry, uh, looks like we lost uh, Gondol. I'm going to read the slides. Individuals are not stable things. They are fleeting. Chromosomes, too, are shuffled into oblivion, like the hands of cards soon after the dealt. But the cards themselves survive the shuffling, the cards of the genes. The genes are not destroyed by crossing over. They merely change partners and march on. Of course they march on. That's the business. They are replicators, and we are the survival machines. Oh, no, we lost the slides. Hold on. I do have access to the slides as well. Let me share that. Give me one second. And uh, just so you, in case you guys are wondering, it's um, bad weather. With... That, um, that uh, life is actually, uh, if you view it uh, from the evolutionary perspective, what uh, Dawkins did, uh, he said that it's DNA that controls the evolution and the hereditary, not the individual or the group. And then he tells us a story that everything on this planet or every life form that has existed, 99.9 different types of species, are all extinct. But the one thing that hasn't died that is almost immortal for the history of our planet is the DNA uh, or the molecule, the replicator. So uh, he says something very interesting. Uh, they did not die out, for they are past masters of the survival arts but do not look for them floating loose in the sea. They gave up that cavalier freedom long ago. Now they swarm in huge colonies safe inside gigantic lumbering robots, sealed off from the outside world, communicating with it by tortuous indirect routes, manipulating it by remote control. They are in you and in me. They created us, body and mind, and their preservation is the ultimate rationale for our existence. They have come a long way, those replicators. Now they go by the name of genes and we are their survival machines. So this, uh, this specific thing, this specific idea of Richard Dawkins when he brought this up is so profound. It is one of the most profound ideas that I've come across because you now have to reimagine all of life. And once you get into this book, he talks about... Uh, how gene pools interact and how behaviors are actually a lot of times being controlled by genes. And we are actually kind of almost like being pulled by the genetic strings like puppets, but we are not aware of this. Uh, it's very, very fascinating. Uh, but now we're going to get to something interesting. Uh, what are memes? So this is where we come to religion. Uh, and this is where it gets interesting. Uh, so Memes are units of information that, just like genes, go through what some people call as mimetic evolution. Like uh, traits right along or uh, genotypes manifest in phenotypes within the DNA, the mechanism for memes to evolve is the human brain. So memes jump from brain to brain. And they evolve like that. Now, what are memes? Memes can be religions. Memes can be language, culture, social rules, politics, anything. It's a unit of information. In essence, to dumb it down further, what I would say is every animal expresses a behavior. Okay, when an, and a monkey is 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 
talking to its family or, well, let's not talk, but interacting with its family, we'll still put it in the category of biology. But when humans, we are also animals, homo sapiens, when we start talking, we then classify our behaviors into subcategories, which is politics or religion. But at the end of the day, what we're doing is we're expressing a behavioral phenotype, uh, which is very essential to understand. Now, memes uh, are very fascinating because uh, they can take many shapes and they can induce a lot of different effects on the gene pool. Uh, all of this knowledge was absent from the human consciousness for most of our history, the genes, the memes, the evolutionary theory. So we're going kind of blind in the, for most of our history. Now, I want to read this out to you guys. Um, to get you a proper idea of what Dawkins was saying himself. We need a name for the new replicator, a noun that conveys the idea of a unit of cultural transmission or a unit of imitation. My meme comes from a suitable Greek root, but I want a monosyllable. So he just details how he came up with the word meme that he was trying to make rhyme with jeans and cream. Um, but anyways, uh, examples of memes are tunes, ideas, catchphrases, clothes, fashions, ways of making pots, building arches. Just as genes propagate themselves in the gene pool by leaping from body to body via sperm or eggs, so memes propagate themselves in the meme pool by leaping from brain to brain via a process which in the broad sense can be called imitation. This is interesting, this line here. When you plant a fertile meme in my mind, you literally parasitize my brain, turning it into a vehicle for the memes propagation. In just the way that a virus may parasit parasitize uh, the genetic mechanism of a host cell. Uh, this is very, very, very profound stuff. And what he's trying to get to is just like evolution has shaped our bodies and our thoughts, evolution has also shaped our cultures, our religions, everything we do. And a lot of it is being controlled by these invisible strings that we do not see. All righty. How's everybody doing so far? Is it okay? Is it uh, is everybody following? Is it too complex? So far, so good. So I'll just... Um, Any questions? Let me just, let me just uh, give a layman's sort of explanation or, or reflection on what you said. So the idea is to think of something more generic than just genes. We're talking now something as, as generic as an idea. And ideas can also pass on just like genes pass on. So what he's done is he's created a, a meta concept, right? Is that, is that right? Would you, would you say, agree with that? Yes, yes, in a way. Uh, so basically what he's saying is uh, memes are the information unit equivalency of genes mm, okay that's what he's trying to say all right so everyone's uh, in so far so good Should all right so next, next slide yeah. next slide okay i'm just gonna watch from your stream now okay, okay. yep all righty so once we realize that what genes are doing uh before we go into jared diamonds i want to mention something so genes create memes that will favor the group okay a gene, a meme survival is dependent wholly and fully on its ability to infer a survivability enhancement to the gene, okay? Memes cannot exist without genes. In fact, memes and genes are intertwined. 
Now, a lot of times what we need to understand is back in the day, imagine the hunter-gatherer type of society. You had tribes or tribelets, and the world was vastly, vastly different in terms of how people interacted, uh, the threats they were facing, the paranoia. People were more paranoid in that regard as well. Um, but what I want to focus on is the group evolution. How do tribes evolve and get selected? If, let's say, for example, you have a tribe that is very benign, very pacifist. If you were living 10,000 years ago, an outsider will come in and gobble over your resources if you were pacifist. Okay? So what needed to be done is natural selection will force you to evolve defense mechanisms or evolutionary tendencies where if you're living in an environment surrounded by violence, you have to be partly violent to survive in that situation as well. Now, when you start seeing the memes evolving in that context, you have to put uh, the context of the memes is the success of a meme does not depend if it's objectively true. A meme can be straight up about being a flat earther meme. Okay? The meme will start becoming promiscuous as long as it allows the beholder of the meme to have an evolutionary advantage, okay? And that's what Dawkins was saying, that memes can infect minds like parasites, but it can then, in the later part we'll get to, they can also induce effects that mimic island gigantism and island-type dwarfism that we see in evolutionary biology as well. Anyways, with that aside, uh, uh, let's get to this guy. So this book, Guns, Germs, and Steel, one of my all-time favorite books by Jared Diamond. It's uh, one of the first three books <laughs> in the series. Uh, and this book is focused on the past 13,000 years. So this is not talking about the genetic evolution. Sorry, you cut yeah. off. This can, you, can you repeat that? The can you repeat that? Medical first. Yeah, sorry. Uh, this Abdul book Abdul? is very, very profound. Can you, you, can you hear um, me? Yeah, can you repeat that last section again? All right, so uh, what I was trying to talk to you about was the Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared Diamond. He focuses on the mimetic aspect of our evolution, especially the past 13,000 years post-agricultural revolution. And this is very, very fascinating because it is at this point where agriculture then starts driving forward some very... Uh, interesting trajectories into how we evolved and how we ended up with the religions we have now. Uh, so a few things that I wanted to touch base on is evolution of agriculture drove civilization. So agriculture evolution led into uh, language, led into more complex record keeping, written records. Uh, agriculture then allowed for something that's very interesting. If you have your own food source at a stable place, Agriculture will allow you to produce dense nutrition that can sustain a high amount or a high dense population, okay? So the importance of this is that if you were a hunter-gatherer type, you don't have time out of your free time to go sit down and make inventions and stuff, okay? You'll be too busy going getting food and all that. Uh, over time, when you start producing agriculture, you can feed a lot more people. You have surplus of food, which allows sedentary lifestyles and specialists to evolve. When people are not always running after looking out for food, 
then they have time to sit down, make pots, make paintings and stuff like that. So that's one way how agriculture enabled us free time to make more things. The other interesting thing a lot of people forget about is agricultural animals and crowd diseases. Almost all of the first few plagues in human history started where? In the Fertile Crescent, which was what? The heart of the domestication of animals. And a lot of our diseases like rabies uh, and stuff, they jump to us from uh, domestic animals. Now, why is that important? Because we're going to get to something that's going to be uh, mind-blowing where the Justinian plague and this exact thing played a very pivotal role in the expanse of Islam. Um, anyways, uh, so... Uh, Jared Diamond does in his book talk about how religion fits into the paradigm. He's in fact mentions that religion is an institution, a furthering of institutionalization of uh, agriculture. Because what happens is once there's an agricultural boom, the population density goes up. But then you need to homogenize the population upon shared set of beliefs. If they're not united, they're going to fall apart. So hence, you utilize religion as a uniting force. So you see that in uh, cultures of the past, religious buildings also served as centers of uh, not just social, but also political gatherings. So rulers will use religion to homogenize society. Now, another important thing I'm going to bring up from an evolutionary biology perspective is think about it this way. If you have a group of 10 people, okay, and there's another group of 10 people, one group is an internal conflict where it is, its beliefs are not homogenized, okay? And then there's the other group, which is homogenized. It has the same set of beliefs. Who do you think is at more of an advantage of winning? The united group or the one that's fighting itself, right? So you'll see that evolution will always push you to have a united set of shared beliefs, and it will penalize any dissidents from the set, uh, the shared set of beliefs. What I'm trying to get to is how does the blasphemy law tie into this and where does the evolution of the blasphemy law come in? Now, uh, a lot of animals will also behave in this way where if you differ from the norms of the group, you will be eliminated, okay? But what I'm not trying to say is I'm not arguing for a blasphemy law in the modern world. What I'm trying to give people is an idea of how it would have evolved by evolutionary pressures, socio-dynamic pressures, okay? To give you a converse idea, uh, the, the importance of homogenizing society upon at least a certain set of shared ideas is very important. Uh, and this was even Muhammad was threatening this uh, social homogeneity of the Meccans. Hence, they didn't like it at first, and they were very against him. So that on its own... Uh, is a very, very interesting uh, facet of the evolution of social group dynamics uh, that we need to keep in mind. Uh, but anyways, uh, uh, Jared Diamond also uh, goes into the technological disparity and clashes where why did the Spanish or the Europeans decimate the, the Native Americans? Was it uh, because of crowd diseases, because of agriculture? Uh, why couldn't the colonizers colonize Africa or India, but were able to colonize North America? So these kind of factors we get into is very, very, uh, very, very fascinating. Anyways, uh, 
I would say this book is essential to gain a critical understanding of why do certain cultures or societies overpower one another and how those events from thousands of years ago have still shaped us today. Uh, in short, Europe's colonization of Africa had nothing to do with differences between European and African peoples themselves, as white racists assume. Rather, it was due to accidents of geography and biogeography, and particularly to the continent's different areas, axes, and suits of wild plants and animal species. That is, different historical trajectories of Africa and Europe stem ultimately from differences in real estate. What he's trying to say here is, People in North America didn't have horses. They're not native to that continent. So when thousands of years of evolution and horses came with the Europeans, Native Americans were like, whoa, what's this? There's a lot of factors that aren't people specific, but environment specific. For example, the same group in history will get uh, split into two and end up on two different islands. One island is rich in metals. The other is rich, is only made up of coral reefs. So 500 years later, what you see is one set of the same initial tribe has developed much more advanced technology based on metals, and the other one is still stuck with coral reefs and wooden sticks. So these kind of nuances, when you start to understand, are very, very fascinating. Um, uh, anyways, uh, let's take any uh, questions or any other discussion points before we move forward. All right. Samir, do you have anything to add? Nope. <laughs> All righty. So let's go to the next slide. All right. So another interesting thing, and I want to bring this up, is a lot of people do not realize how crowd diseases or animals have shaped us. So I'm going to bring up an interesting fact. I believe the cow was uh, domesticated in two different places individually, like two different times in history. One was in India, and I think one was in Europe. Uh, but there's a reason why a lot of uh, anthropological societies, older societies, would worship the cow because it provided sustenance to the community. So worshiping and protecting the cow as a sacred animal makes sense from an evolutionary perspective because you're protecting your sustenance and food source. So that's why you'll see that these kind of trends and things come out of evolution. Now, uh, a technological disparity. Uh, so the what happened in North America is, is quite shocking. Uh, like you can see, cumulative mortalities of these previously unexposed peoples from Eurasian germs range from 50 to 100%. For instance, the Indian population of Hispaniola declined from around 8 million when Columbus arrived in 1492 to zero by 1535. And a lot of times this guy will point out in the books that North Americans were not killed by the, by the steel or the guns, but it was the germs that killed them. And you will see that these germs will pop up initially in the Justinian plague in rela relation to Islam in a little bit. Anyways, but when Cortez's next onslaught came, the Aztecs were no longer naive and fought street by street with utmost tenacity. What gave the Spaniards a decisive advantage was smallpox, which reached Mexico in 1520 with one infected slave arriving from Spanish Cuba. The resulting epidemic proceeded to kill nearly half of the Aztecs, including their emperor. 
Aztec survivors were demoralized by the mysterious illness that killed Indians and spared Spaniards, as if advertising the Spaniards' invincibility. Uh, by 1618, Mexico's initial population of about 20 million had plummeted to about 1.6 million. So what you see is this is not just uh, the white people coming from Europe and just killing them with their sores, the diseases. Because Europe at that time had had big city centers and domestication for thousands of years before the natives had, Europeans had evolved crowd diseases that had never existed in North America. Anyway, so what he's trying to say here is measles and TB evolved from diseases of cattle, influenza for disease of pigs, and smallpox, possibly from a disease of camels. The Americas had very few native domesticable species from which humans could acquire such diseases. Uh, and everything interesting is in Africa, you see that the, a lot of the wild animals are not domesticable, the natural species there. Uh, so there's the, they couldn't domesticate. So despite there being multiple different points on the planet which fit the fertile crescent or the, the Mediterranean climate, it was only one spot that sparked it. Uh, anyways. Another thing I wanted to point out that is at the bottom here is Jared Diamond focuses on this literacy. Why were the European colonizers so effective in taking, spreading over all across the world was literacy. They could preserve information in a more precise, accurate format and then pass it on to other people versus oral traditions. Okay. Now, the interesting thing is agriculture started 13,000 years ago. Language wasn't invented until like 3,500 to 4,500 years ago. Okay, this is still 3000 years before Islam. When we understand the cognitive importance of language uh, and the effect it has had on the trajectory of evolution of different tribes, the idea that Allah, out of his whole wisdom, chose an illiterate guy who couldn't read or write as his prophet is a blunder that cannot be forgiven. Okay, and you will get to something very interesting in a little bit and how it played out. Uh, but yeah, let's get, let's go to the next slide. If, uh, so, if you have any questions, mm -hmm. do you think that, you know, how the, the Arabian society had, you know, this memorization going on and the poetry and all that, um, but they didn't memorize things as long as the Quran typically, right? There's probably no, no need to do that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Muhammad comes along and he's, you know, narrating things you know ad hoc as they're coming about people are scrambling to write them on you know like parchment if they keep actually i don't think they even got parchment it's mm -hmm. mostly like bones shoulder bones of animals and whatever they could get now the only way to really make this survive and we know even from the hadith that there were times where this this was disastrous was to to enforce mass memorization and mm -hmm. so he artificially try to preserve the meme of the Quran. Would you say that that's an... That's, that's a good. very, very interesting way because you can think of it. If, if this prophet had realized that he could just get it written down and the importance of language and written things, he could have preserved the Quran in a much better format and we wouldn't have the holes in the narrative <laughs> and the whole Osman burning the copies of the Quran and <laughs> fighting of the companions. But yeah, that's a very, very valid point. Like yep. that itself, like think about it this way. Had the... Had Muhammad been literate the quality of the quran would have been much better uh the 
lots of different trajectories would have been taken of the preservation of the Quran and all that. With that being said, uh, we have to remember that not all oral traditions are 100% fabricated. Yes, there is some truth to them because predominantly when you look at our history, we've been speaking for hundreds of thousands of years, but we invented written language only 4,500 years ago. Right, but well, not but not with Badim, basically the with the expectation of like what the Quran is at. Mm-hmm. The ultimate with Badim, literal word of God, letter for letter being preserved. That is not, you know, technically feasible to the extent that is being claimed by the Quran, right? Mm-hmm. No, no. I mean, if you already know the uh, holes in the narrative, <laughs> disproves that. So for details on that, you can go to the specific thing. I mean, <laughs> we wouldn't have the seven or the ten or the fourteen qiraat if it was preserved properly. Right. Um, Imagine uh, in an alternate universe where they actually had writing. Muhammad could write, he didn't write, and he told his followers to write it. And then we had Muslims claiming it's been preserved miraculously by pen and paper. <laughs> Imagine <laughs> that world. Right. Exactly. <laughs> But nonetheless, I mean, at least what we can say is that uh, Muhammad's own uh, in promotion of literacy, the Iqra in the Quran, is still at least somewhat in a positive light, even though for the Arabs, I mean, there were a lot more intelligent people in his community or more uh, literate people in his community at that time that saw through his, his BS right away. But like I said, it's not about the meme itself being true it depends on the intelligence of who you're imposing the meme upon if there's dumb people they will for example and again take democracy if you give an uneducated group the power to vote they will elect a person just like them who's equally uneducated into power <laughs> you know so it's a circle yeah. um, but anyways, let's go to the next slide. And, and now we're gonna that's a, the whole rise of populist leaders we have, right? Mm-hmm. People that like leaders that say what people want to hear, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the other thing is like if you look at politics, like you can actually have people based on merit working to solve actual issues, but no, it's not about that because to get votes, you gotta dumb yourself down to the level of the voter base. Okay, and this is very important. <laughs> All right. But let's let's get to the next one. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. How did Islam begin? So there's actually a whole paper written about it. And this is something that I kept telling. Crowd diseases, uh, plagues, like we mentioned in the past where the North Americans were just decimated by the, the new diseases they hadn't encountered before. In this situation, Islam was advantaged by its nomadic lifestyle and the harsh environment of the desert wouldn't allow these kind of proud diseases to evolve. Plus, the Arabian Peninsula didn't have huge uh, population or dense cities, which would allow the transmission of these uh, these diseases and mutations. Because the more number of people you have, the more vessels you're providing for the virus or the bacteria to mutate and make uh, different forms of attack to kill the population. All right. So here uh, we see something very important. He says on the top, right, uh, the rapid expansion from the year 622 uh, of the Hijra, uh, the rapid growth coincided with the spread of the bubonic plague in the Middle East. Although a first epidemic had been documented in the year 570, 
Interesting. So there are some academic articles that I did include in the Epileptic Prophet series uh, that mentioned that <clears throat> when Abraha came with his uh, elephants, he brought the first instance of plague with him. Elephants weren't uh, the norm back in the Arabian Peninsula. In fact, I mean, in a desert environment, they would pass away. Uh, so that was new. And that's something, like I said, the horses coming from Europe, same way uh, these kind of fa factors play out. Although a first uh, epidemic had been documented in the year 570, the pre-Islamic phase in the Arabian Peninsula, uh, five severe episodes of plague sub-academics are classically considered in the Middle Eastern geographic area. The first occurred during the years 627 to 628 AD. That's about four to five years before Muhammad died. Uh, and the fifth in the year 716, that's almost uh, 80 years after his death. It may be stated that at the emergence of Islam, the geographic region, including Egypt, Palestine, Syria, Iraq, and Iran, was affected by an endemic plague. Very, very fascinating when you start thinking about it. Um, I'm not going to read all the, the whole thing. Uh, so let's go down here. The plague significantly contributed to the weakening of the Eastern Roman Empire and the rapid decline of the Persian Empire. What happened is both of those empires right next to Islam got weakened. They were also for the past 20 years involved in the Great War. So the plague and that weakening those empires allowed a power pocket to develop, which mm. was filled by, guess what, Islam. We see a modern synthesis of this situation, which was ISIS after the Arab Spring. Uh, so, like I said, there are very rational, logical explanations. If you do read an anthropology history, you can see how it all evolved. It's just very simple homo sapiens memes, genes uh, happening. But uh, anyways, subsequently, when the uh, sorry, and the rapid decline of the Persian Empire, while during the early expansion phases of Islam, so Islam is expanding and the other empires are just being decimated by plagues. So it's allowing Islam to expand. It indirectly supported the nomadic Arab tribes, which moving on desert or semi-desert territories succeeded in escaping contagions more easily. Subsequently, when the Arab population became sedentary, after occupying the conquered cities, this initial advantage was significantly reduced. Mind blown. This is what Jared Diamond was talking about. That's uh, communities that are sedentary, large densities will have more diseases. And when those diseases go to a population that has not had those animals or those densest, dense populations will suffer. And this is what happened in North America, kind of reverse happened here or similar kind of variables. Um, anyways, with that aside, uh, if there's any more questions, Let's look at the comments. Brother, even Allah can use something as insignificant as a virus to spread <laughs> his religion. <laughs> but I'll be very yeah. honest. Islam did have some very interesting evolutionary adaptive benefits. Because due to Muhammad's OCD, which I feel was the case for his scrupulosity and his constant washing, uh, his OCD also ended up making Muslims more hygienic than most of the Europeans, okay? They were doing wudu, they're washing. So that allowed the, or limited the spread of diseases within Muslim communities in a way. But like, what about the whole reusing the water and rubbing Muhammad's 
thing on his on yes his exactly <laughs> right like there's his ocd can only give you so much the delusions will give you glimmers <laughs> of good things not the best the rest you know so, yeah because it's not based on the right principle right so sometimes mm-hmm. it'll be you'll get it right mm-hmm. like uh, muslims sometimes even come up with that example of the uh what is it the camel urine and they find an example <laughs> from this extract that you can take out of the yeah, urine, yeah, yeah. urine or something and that mm-hmm. can be used to treat a certain disease mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean you drink urine right so yeah yeah i mean you can extract anything and purify it like five times down the road in, in a pharmaceutical sense uh and then you can't say that it's you, yeah you, you can't do that actually yeah. in fact camel urine causes mers as far as i remember middle yes. eastern respiratory syndrome yeah. so again yeah <laughs> so you know the other thing i want to mention is that um so this is sometimes hard for people to understand that if there was another prophet like muhammad let's just say and this didn't happen hmm. the exact set of circumstances that led to islam becoming as big as it did we would never have known but because we're seeing it after the fact we're amazed by it you, it's it's because of all of these things that happened that you know benefited the system like you like this example which i never knew mm-hmm. of the plague you know weakening these other empires right making mm-hmm. it seem all the more miraculous but what, for the cases that weren't miraculous they're gone yeah. right not because not because this was miraculous but because of survivor bias mm-hmm. the ones you're that survive right. are the only ones you see so you're like oh my god this is what, but no all the other ones but they just didn't have the same circumstances that led to the same result right mm-hmm. it is i'll say this it is not the uniqueness of muhammad's ideology that was required or the only thing that could have filled that power pocket remember there's aswad ansi and the, list of false prophets in arabia if it wasn't muhammad somebody else would have just filled in that power pocket and capitalized on this and instead of uh islam we might have had uh, what was that muslim guys religion you know <laughs> yeah and when you really start thinking about it from a rational perspective yeah this is just pure revolution genetics memes political science happening social evolution there's nothing miraculous about this you know going back to when someone asks you can you go back to islam <laughs> like after knowing all this nah. Nah. Well, well, how can yeah. you how can you even like consider it's never mind islam even just the idea of you know god in general right it's so gone mm-hmm. totally i totally agree like it's so far down the drain like it's 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 <laughs> there's it's it's a point where like you see some things and you learn some things after which you can never go back you know it's all right so continue to the next one yeah let's go to the next slide okay so what one thing sorry one more yeah. thing i just thought mm-hmm. of before we go this is saying that it benefited them because they were nomadic mhm but didn't muhammad also say like when the plague comes don't run away from it and like stay where you are yeah he wasn't uh i mean that's the way he wanted to preserve because he did see the plague in his life a little bit in the in 570 so he might have been going off on that but yeah uh you're right he did say that that don't run from the city to another one uh to avoid the spreading it but that's not miraculous at all or anything is the common knowledge back then too because like you could see 
that if you go from an infected city to another infected city, oh, the disease yeah. spreads. <laughs> That's it's like easy a bunch of people are coming in your city. <laughs> mm-hmm. He probably didn't want them coming in. It's like, guys, stay away, yeah. please. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Don't come here. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah, that makes which, sense. Which in that case is there. That's a good, that's a good response. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, so I wanted to come to this. This is a very interesting uh, facet of physics. So in the modern world, we're going to come to something called evolutionary stable strategies. Okay. Um, and what I'm trying to get to is an idea that Islam in the past, because it was surrounded by ideologies that were at its level, was evolutionary stable back in the day. But now it's become obsolete as a strategy as an evolutionary stable strategy. So uh, the other thing is that we see these patterns in Muslim societies pop up again and again. And then we saw in the, in the history as well, how did Muslims go from the golden age of Islam being, this is why I brought this specific thing up. How did the Muslims go from the golden age of Islam leading the world to becoming the least educated or the, the least educated of the bigger religions in the world? How did that happen? Because there's a point where when the printing press was invented, the Muslim world banned the printing press. And at that point, Europeans capitalized on it. And then there was a huge switch where all the knowledge was printed out in Europe and the Muslims were banning the printing press, which caused a huge stifling of intellectual progress in the Muslim world. Okay. The other aspect is because Muslims and their prophet were, uh, Muslims say that the prophet could not read or write, that also lends into the idea that reading and writing is not necessary to be a successful human being because their prophet was not. So it's not considered as noble of a trait or as a necessary trait, okay? Um, And like I said, I've seen this too, where a lot of places in Pakistan growing up, too many people will say that there's the worldly knowledge and then there's the religious knowledge. And this separation of knowledge, where they call it the real knowledge, I've literally heard. Ilam, as they say, is going to the madrasa and doing this. And then they say that the university knowledge is dunyavi knowledge or worldly knowledge, and it's not of any benefit. So a lot of people have this bias towards just religious knowledge and fundamentalism, and this creates this idea as well. That's at least from uh, what I've seen in Pakistan. Um, but anyways, we're getting, this is from 2016 from a Pew survey. Notice here on the left side, uh, Muslims have on average 5.6 years of schooling worldwide. Fascinatingly, the big thing I want to point out, Muslims in non-Muslim countries where they are a minority are on average way more educated than Muslims that are in a Muslim majority country. Uh, So interestingly, secular nations, Muslims are more educated rather being more educated in the Muslim-majority nations, as you can see on the left side. The other thing, uh, uh, we have this map which highlights the average years of education for Muslims all across the world. We are seeing that in Muslim-majority nations, the level of education of Muslims is much lower than that in North America and Europe or Australia. Uh, So what we'll do is we'll go ahead to the next slide and we'll see what the next trend is. Now... Another interesting thing on the left side you see is around the world, nearly four in 10 Muslims have no formal schooling. This is, again, uh, keeping in mind from uh, 2016. Do check out the full research because their full research will highlight their trends for the past 10 years, how the gap has been improving, how Muslims are catching up. 
So the situation has been on a positive trajectory. But what I am trying to show you is when you start looking at these figures, what is going on in the world in terms of politics and religion and violence and religious extremism suddenly starts to make sense. You are having what we see is a huge disparity between the human population and its education level. So what's happening, and this is a quotation, is we are silencing intelligent people from the fear of offending the stupid people. Okay? And this is causing a lot of issues. And we're going to come to something very important in the next few slides. But anyways, let's read this first. Uh, Muslim women around the world lag behind Muslim men in average years of schooling by a year and a half, 4.9 versus 6.4 years. The gap is particularly large in Middle East, North Africa region, where Muslim men have an average of 6.9 years schooling and women have uh, 4.9 years. Uh, and at the bottom here is highlighted more than 4 in 10 Muslim women worldwide have no formal schooling compared with 30% of Muslim men. Uh, and yeah, that's a very, 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 very important thing that she's highlighted, the comment from Homo sapien, uh, let Afghan girls learn. Because what did uh, Daniel Hakika just say? He's living in a Western country where he's gone to one of the most privileged institutions in the world, Harvard. And then he was talking about, oh, yeah, the Taliban should ban women and women who want to go to schools, universities are, you know, like uh, overplaying their card and spreading fitna or whatever. Uh, these kind of ideas go back to a lot of uh, fundamental things in Islam and its attitudes towards learning and all that as well. Um, and uh, where did where did his wife go? Right, I think she went to Harvard as well. No, she they went met to there? Harvard as well. He met her at Harvard. Hmm. Stuck for the law. <laughs> so do you see the hypocrisy in these people? Yeah. Like Daniel. Uh, another thing is like you'll see. I'll point this out later on at the end. Is like people like Muhammad Hijab with their degrees in political science lack the most basic wisdoms in terms of the history of social political discourse and its evolution and trajectory of our society. Like you've been getting masters and stuff and you're still chest thumping shirtless in Hyde's park. Come on guy. Uh, <laughs> it's all, he's a very much a showman, right? Like, Oh yeah. Yeah. Like the, one of the reasons what I want to do is I want to change the paradigm. I want to inject anthropology, inject evolutionary biology into the main discourse of the, the Islamic criticism or the Dava community uh, because what we're experiencing now, man, it's low-level content like Muhammad Hijab or this Farid guy. Like, honestly, I would give their content two out of ten. Not, it's not <laughs> worth considering. Right? Yeah. Imagine you are so so daft that you say that one of the biggest miracles the Prophet did was split the moon in half, but the whole world was asleep, so nobody saw it. <laughs> Where you... uh, read books by my friend read books about how these mythologies propagate in in different societies in different anthropological settings you're not aware of that anyways we'll what keep going you, what would you give uh ali dawa out of 10 if these guys oh he, he's not he's not worthy of being considered on this scale <laughs> um he doesn't I qualify say, i was gonna say but like isn't this the West's fault? Like the West, you know, actually the West is always the one to blame because they're the ones, you know, ruining all these countries. Okay, I'm, I'm being sarcastic, but but let's talk about that. Let's talk about like, 
why how can you not how can you say this is actually the muslim country's fault a lot of these countries are poor countries oh yeah totally so we'll just look at the uh, uh history of uh, conquest right and the simple idea is um conquest has been part and parcel of the human species for a while in fact evolution predicates that uh tribes that are stronger technologically more advanced uh will either subjugate the smaller tribe or annihilate it another aspect of evolution that you will read in books is evolution is not and this is a quote i think from uh, dawkins is selfish gene somewhere is evolution is not that i must succeed it is that others must fail and genes over the course of history have utilized or understood this idea that in terms of competition with a with a resource the easiest way is to eliminate the competition hence we see this violence throughout the genetic kingdom especially the mammals and animals like that um uh but saying uh, why uh why the west is doing it no a uh, conquest has been an ongoing facet and it's been driving evolution so for example uh islam did this uh as well like to the whole world uh from uh, in the middle east at least in 620s onwards to like 8 900s they were conquering everything you know you either pay jizya or off you know stuff like that uh, so jihad did play a very important part in the spread of islam which yasser qadi has admitted but i'm going to say something jihad back then was an evolutionary adaptive strategy for islam because it was surrounded by similar ideologies that were combative and what islam did it made a hyper uh, uh, martyrdom jihad idea it's a meme it created the jihad or the martyrdom meme which allowed his followers to just go and spread the religion but that was effective at that time mm-hmm. uh, but what i'm not i'm not making a moral argument or anything what i'm trying to give you is that these trends and stuff they keep happening in human history this happened with the uh, in australia so, and all that too anyways i was going to say i mean we can just look at the values of many muslim countries uh, afghanistan is obviously there's nothing stopping them from letting women study mm-hmm. like literally nothing except that they don't want them studying um i know that in many other muslim countries they they do allow women to study they may have you know they they it's the I think gender segregation makes the situation worse because in many cases the gender gender segregation means that there may or may not be an option for you like there might be an all girls school that you can attend but if your culture mm-hmm. doesn't allow it I know Saudi um you know I I read Rahaf Muhammad's book Rebel and it was like you know obviously women are not allowed to go out and you know they they were living in a small community where um they're just expected to stay home and you know be housewives basically so what's the point yeah. of studying up to a certain, up up to a certain after a certain point it's just like there's no point doing mm-hmm. any further education but then you know, i think even she was asking like well what about the doctors women doctors you want me to go to a male doctor like at the same time you're the one <laughs> saying that i'm not allowed to interact with men now i'm supposed to take off my clothes in front of a male <laughs> i actually have a very very interesting story about this in pakistan cuz like you mentioned the culture surrounding women not going outside not getting education is very prevalent in pakistan and so uh, <laughs> the pakistanis in the will find it funny my mom used to be a rishta aunty okay she would hook people up and what ended up happening once he literally got a request that they want a medical doctor girl who is a specialist 
but she's not going to be practicing medicine at all after getting married. So I was like, well, why? yeah, that's, that's exactly what it is. It's because they want to be like, oh, I married a doctor or whatever. It, it's happens. And then, you know, like the hijab also limits opportunities for women, for educational uh, and stuff uh, in so many ways. I mean, honestly, I've experienced this my my whole life when I was living in Pakistan. Like anytime my mom or my cousin wants to go out at site after like 6, 7 p.m., it's like a whole deal. You know, they have to take some men with them because they're going to get harassed. Uh, I remember we were walking. There's a place in Pakistan called uh, Muddy. Very, very famous tourist spot. And there's a road called Muddy Mall. Very, very dense. Uh, kind of like a road people are walking. And it's a Muslim country. And honestly, my female, female family members will get harassed as hell. And they'll be wearing very loose. Some of them are wearing like abayas, man. They get grabbed. So it's, it, it happens and it's... Uh, um, there's another layer to this topic as well where you can get into the bi biology of evolutionary a sexual model the society might adapt and how it might uh, influence what type of sexual dimorphism they manifest within the members of their male and female. And there is a very interesting thing that Dawkins will show you, for example. Uh, let's take apes as a comparison, right? Uh, gorillas behave in a harem style model where one gorilla will be mating with 40, 50 other female gorillas, right? So the competition who gets to mate is happening gorilla versus gorilla. Gorilla has to beat the other gorilla to show his dominance and then he gets the harem, right? Gorillas is uh, balds or their scrotum seems to be much smaller compared to the counterpart chimps or bonobos who are more promiscuous and don't adapt to a harem style model. Why is that? Because their competition or theirs at times, their sexual selection uh, between sperms is not the physical fight between the gorilla versus gorilla. It is the chimp trying to displace the semen of the other chimp because apes are promiscuous. So the quality of the sperm is more required as a, as a factor to impregnate. Hence, their balls are bigger, so they're producing more sperm and stuff like that. These kind of dimorphic things are very interesting where you'll see that harem-styled, uh, uh, I think seals, I believe, is the, the bigger the harem size, the I think the mass difference is also larger within the male and the female species. I think Dawkins mentions this in his uh, book, The Ancestor's Tale, a very, very good one as well. But that's a completely side topic right now. We're not getting into sexual evolutionary the theory or biology. That's uh, not right. the... <laughs> so. So to, to conclude, the problem here is culture. It's not like, um, I mean, to some extent, I'm sure that we can, we, if we actually did look at poor non-Muslim countries, some of them may also have the same symptoms of problems that we find with Islam because they're also very conservative, right? And mm -hmm. I don't know if it would be as bad and be interesting to see because this one looks like it actually has separated it as Muslims versus non-Muslims. So um, yeah. it'd be interesting to go into that to see like, like African countries that are not Muslim, do they also have the same problems? Mm -hmm. Actually, it does mention that as well uh, in the detail. If anybody wants to go, this is a very detailed breakdown. 
Uh, and it's not just Islam. It goes into uh, education levels of Christians, education levels of Buddhists. So we can see a very good comparison in terms of group demographics, which is very fascinating. Uh, but anyways, let's go on to the next slide. Inverse relationship of intelligence and religiosity. This is something that uh, two serious scientists or people who study cognitive science, neuroscience has been apparent. Uh, over and over again, we keep seeing this. Uh, there is a statistically significant inverse relationship of intelligence and religiosity, okay? Where what I'm trying to say is the more religious you are, the less likely you'll be as intelligent. Uh, and right now we're looking at the studies from Mr. Uh, Zuckerman. And uh, what he says in the first on the left side here, uh, a meta-analysis of 63 studies showed a significant negative association between intelligence and religiosity. Then he goes on. Uh, first, intelligent people are less likely to confirm and thus are more likely to resist religious dogma. Second, intelligent people tend to... And we're live. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the two Abdullahs. It's been way too long, way too long. So we have <laughs> sort of disappeared for a while. And now we're back and we're going to try to do this more often. So we have a really interesting episode for you today. You are not going to, you are going to regret missing this if you log off. Don't log <laughs> off. Stay on. Wait and see what we have for you today. Gondal, how's it going? Hello, everybody. How's it going? It's been a while. I hope everybody can hear me fine. Uh, Everybody's been wondering where I have been. I disappeared off the scene, you know, not making any videos or any content really. Uh, but don't worry, I was really busy. Uh, I have something in the works. Uh, it's going to be very interesting. It's almost at the same quality of the uh, epileptic prophet, but you don't want to miss it. Um, I have been reading, uh, doing lots of research and have some very, very interesting content. Got uh, ready for you guys. And as you'll see today, uh, We'll show you a glimmer of that, the type of research that I'm now involved in, uh, what the scope of the uh, next few uh, years is going to look like for us. Anyways, over to you, Samir, if you want to uh, introduce anything else uh, before we jump right into the slides. Uh, no, I think it's good. Just uh, happy to be doing this again. And uh, hopefully this is a good time for everyone. Obviously, we're going to end up excluding some people and uh, including some people. So it is what it is. Uh, let me see about sharing the slide news layout. Okay, there we go. Perfect. Alrighty, so I'm gonna go and start. Uh, so today's topic is gonna be very interesting. Uh, it's gonna be about Islam, evolution, and anthropology. Uh, the reasoning being is uh, in the past uh, what year or so, I've been reading a lot of books on evolutionary biology, Richard Dawkins, and a bunch of others, Daniel Dennett. Uh, apart from that. Uh, a lot of uh, anthropological books as well. One that stands out is uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared Diamond. And honestly, after reading a, a lot of these books, you realize that uh, human beings are essentially an animal that is expressing a behavior which in terms uh, turns into uh, religion and group dynamics. And it's completely uh, changed my view of how I perceive religion uh, from the perspective of evolutionary biology. So it's very interesting. So we're going to get into a bunch of those things. But before that, I have some announcements to make. I'm going to be releasing 
all of my slides, as in there's over 1,000 plus slides. Uh, that's the work of me and Samir for the past, I think, I don't even know, for a while, past five years or so. Uh, but yeah, so overview, we're going to be doing that. We're going to show you where you can get those slides, uh, download them. They're all in PDF format. Then another very, very interesting uh, thing that's come up is the Epileptic Prophet 2nd Edition. So as you all might be aware, the first initial series, a seven-part series, 20 hours in duration, uh, was aired in September 2021. It's coming up to two years now. We've had ample time for any criticisms, uh, any objections to be brought up. And honestly, I've gone through all of them. So I've updated a lot of content in there. Uh, as in, there's about 70-odd plus new slides, videos, papers. Uh, very, very robust. And I actually included a surprise at the end as well for you guys. Anyways, after that, we're going to discuss uh, why Richard Dawkins is famous. It's not because of the God Delusions. And in fact, the God Delusion, I didn't even read it yet. I didn't bother reading it. I read his Selfish Gene. That's the book that put him on the map in 1976. And honestly, it's one of the most important books written in in in, in the scientific community deemed by the Royal Society. Um, it totally upturned uh, biology upside down on its head. Uh, and I think it's a must, must, must read uh, if you ever want to truly understand how evolution works. This book here, Guns, Germs, and Steel, very fascinating. Uh, it's a series of three, four books. Uh, this guy, Jared Diamond, does a fantastic job at summarizing the past 13,000 years, the variables, the dynamics between different tribes, communities, how and why we are living in the world we have right now. Very, very fascinating. We'll get to that as well. And we're going to cover some global Islamic demographics because I told you that this is a video that's going to be talking about anthropology and evolution. So we're, uh, we're going to get into some uh, demographics about beliefs, education levels of Muslims, stuff like that. And we're going to go over religion and intelligence, which uh, has been studied from a scientific perspective. I have, I think, like three or four papers to show you guys that uh, concludes that there is, in fact, an inverse relationship, which means that the more religious you are, the less intelligent you will be. So that's the correlation they found. Uh, the other thing, the main focus, what I want to do tonight is I want to drive home a point uh, which is going to be about evolutionary stable strategies and uh, Muslims becoming one of the biggest victims of Islam. And we're going to go into a statistic and analysis of Islamic violence as well. Um, and then at the end, we're going to talk about what's going on in the world right now with the freedom of speech and the uh, Quran burnings happening in Sweden, Denmark, etc. But before we proceed with this overview, Go back to Samir if any questions, any other uh, things he wants me to point out before we nope. go into deep. Let's get into it. It's all good. All righty. Actually, let me say one more thing. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> go for I it. had the exact same experience as you. I never did God delusion. I was just like, I, mm -hmm. you know what? Like, because other stuff is so much better. The selfish gene, blind watchmaker. And mm -hmm. one, of, one of the amazing things about Richard Dawkins is that someone without a science background, someone like me, can actually easily understand the concepts. And like I'm telling you, when I'm talking to people about evolution, mm -hmm. the points from his book, The Greatest Show on Earth, they keep coming back mm -hmm. over and over again. Like if he talks about the, the experiment, the E. coli experiment. He talks about 
intermediate species. He talks about fossils. He talks about, um, you know, all of the common, you know, why is this still monkeys? <laughs> if we mm -hmm. evolved from monkeys, right? Like, mm -hmm. it's it's just if you if you know, whenever someone wants to debate evolution, I always ask them, like, have you read anything? Mm -hmm. If not, mm -hmm. why are you talking to me? <laughs> like, go and go and read some books mm -hmm. on it, and then. If you don't like it, I mean, if then if you have some actual points to respond, okay, then we can talk. But and and then even then, it's like, why are you talking to me? Go talk to a biologist. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Give me and, a break, right? and honestly, like you said with uh, with Dawkins, like you need to read him for his biology books. Like when you read books like The Selfish Gene, The Blind Watchmaker, uh, The Greatest Show on Earth. Uh, the extended phenotype, it is truly then when you see Dawkins in his, you know, uh, the knight in shining armor. But I'm going to be very straight up out of all the books I have read in my life, which is about three, four hundred books. The Selfish Gene is one of the most profound books that I have ever read. And we will get into that in a little bit. Completely like pull the rug under my feet, honestly. But uh, yeah. Uh, let's get to it. Oh, I see there's a question. Uh, <laughs> All right. Stop scamming Scott. Yeah, I guess uh, thank you to um, everyone that's already donated. Zagros, Denver Johnson, thank and you Stop so Scamming Man. And again, Denver Johnson, again, most, most appreciated. Thank you um, so much. Said, uh, we will get it to uh, all your questions at the end. For our... Oh, I think I'm... Uh, Am I lagging or are you lagging? Okay, I think we lost uh, Gondol. Can if you guys can still see me, uh, please say something, because it looks like Abdullah Gondol got frozen. And um, can you guys still? Okay, okay. So it's just Abdullah Gondol's gone. Okay, so let me let me check in with that. And while we're doing that, I just want to show this on the screen. Uh, not sure if you know this, ex-Muslim movement is gaining massive ground in India. What happens to have the third largest Muslim population of the world? Oh, you're back. Okay, yeah, I don't know what happened there, but there was a certain, certain type of interruption. Sorry about that. Yep, uh, but no let's worries. get back to it, yeah. Yep, let's get back to it. All right. I might be experiencing some bad weather, guys, so do, I do apologize for that. <laughs> the uh, global warming and the weather patterns are completely wild these days. Like, uh, So, yeah, sorry about that. But anyways, let's get to it. Can you still hear me? Alrighty, uh, so these are the slides uh, we're going to be releasing uh, for everybody for free. Um, so there's going to be the second edition of the Epileptic Prophet, which is about 504 slides. There's this book by Dede Kurkut that I've scanned out the relevant parts. I've also uh, included the older version of the Epileptic Prophet, so you can have a comparison new to old. This is another book, Sword and Seizure on the Epilepsy of Muhammad by Dr. Abbas, which is included. Uh, then we have this slideshow, 101 slides. This is a slideshow, I think, uh, that I did with the Pasha Prophet. has about 100,000 plus views on that stream. That's the infamous holes in the Quran narrative. Uh, and my best buddy, Farid. <laughs> uh, then we have Circus of Islam. That's a very good one for seeing the uh, funny side of Islam, the comedy side. Uh, the Psychotic Prophet was the first stream we did regarding Muhammad's mental health. And this is the Quran preserved, I think, from 2018 or 19. And then uh, there's Hadood, there's Genies, there's Blasphemy in Islam. 
have been convenient revelations, hell in Islam, scandals of Aisha, slavery, and at the end, there's Surah Darwin. Uh, so basically, all these uh, slides uh, are in a PDF format, so you can still uh, see them interact with all the screenshots. Uh, but the uh, videos uh, that are embedded in them, they won't play at the set times. Uh, so for the best viewing experience, just download the slides and watch them along the videos. All righty. Uh, but yeah, this is all free for you. Like I think this is five years of mine and some years work that we're just giving out to you guys. Like spread it, share it. And they're PDFs, so they're not too big, as in like file sizes. You can easily print them out as well. And I can, and you can compress them as well. All righty. Let's go to the next slide, see if there's anything else going on in the chat. All right. So uh, what is up with the second edition of the Epileptic Prophet? So like I said, it's been two years, uh, enough time for criticisms to come up, objections. So what I did is I go, looked over all the Farid objections, a couple other people that I found online, and I incorporated answers to their objections with screenshots, scientific analysis, et cetera, in this new edition. Uh, there are actually a total of 63 new slides, uh, new sections, never before seen evidence. And the best part I did for you guys, I included a mathematical model for statistical analysis to prove Muhammad had epilepsy. We might even show that at the end that we're, uh, it's very, very interesting where the chances of him not being epileptic are like one in 1,000 or one in uh, 100,000, depending on the type of calculation. Um, the other thing is like I'm this confident now in the hypothesis that he had epilepsy or the theory that I'm putting a challenge out there to any serious uh, Muslim academics or anybody who really wants to sit down, discuss, or refute the epileptic prophet series, which includes uh, properly addressing the argument and not doing We're using 10 slides to make a point and he'll just show one slide and say, oh, he doesn't know anything. Um, so the other option thing I wanted to ask you uh, is a lot of people have been saying that the series is 20 hours long. So some of them want me to redo the series in a more condensed format. That's one option. Uh, the other option would be that I can edit into a, a long multi-episode mini series and then upload it as edited videos. And then we can make that into a series. So I'm going to go to the comments, uh, take some people's opinions, what they would want or suggest. So um, maybe just turn off your camera just for a little bit because it looks like you're a little bit lagging still. Okay, we'll give me one second. Try putting it back on. Um, so S-Man is saying don't condense it. So I'll, I'll create. So the question is, should we, what was the question? Let, let me make a, I'll make a poll. That's actually a good idea, yeah. We can make so a poll. Do, you, do we want to do we want to know whether we want to redo the series, small edited videos, or mm -hmm. or not not bother? Yeah, yeah. Because okay. honestly, like it's it's such an important it's such an important aspect of religiosity, religions itself, because it doesn't have uh, implications just for Muhammad and Islam. It has implications for almost all other major religions, where we are basically interpreting most of the major world religions as interpretations of possible hallucinatory experiences of people. Uh, but we will definitely get more uh, into this uh, as well. Is my uh, my video and voice okay right now? 
just going to wait for people to say something and see. All right. So I created a poll. Should we lead with the full F series? And uh, you can choose whether you think we should go to the whole thing. The, here's what you can think about. If you lead do the whole thing, we're going to potentially go to a lot more content in detail and get a lot more exposure to the full series of ideas. Mm -hmm. If you want to vote no, you're, you're on the side of making short clips, like 10 minutes, you know, five minutes, eight minutes, 12 minutes, again, mm -hmm. which is a little bit challenging. It could be a little bit challenging sometimes um, mm -hmm. based on the depth of the topic, but those are the two options. Yeah, yeah. And Definitely. at the moment, it's coming out pretty clearly in one one direction. And also, uh, do like the stream. If you are a fan of the two Abdullahs, then like the stream and let's get to as many people as possible. And, All right. Uh, yeah. So right now, the, the results are pretty clear and people are voting yes, redo in full. So that's uh, OK. We'll, we'll leave it. We'll leave the chat, the, the thing open and let, we'll mm -hmm. continue while we. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah, for sure. Because honestly, yeah, the this uh, theory, I'm, I'll be very honest, like in the first run, uh, there were certain issues where even I caught some of my own mistakes, which I have rectified in the new second edition. There weren't anything big or anything major. It's basically some spelling mistakes and maybe one or two errors. But honestly, I uh, would love to do it uh, part uh, this second edition. I would love to even have, you know, somebody like Farid join in and talk to me about the mental hallucinations and you know how he interprets them with his religious inclinations or have a muslim doctor like honestly like i because the evidence is so clear that if you show it to a muslim professional doctor and you ask him what do you see here he's bound by his professional uh knowledge to give you an answer that okay this does look like epilepsy and he'll be very hard to uh flip it the other way anyways uh with that aside let's get back to so let me say one thing. Um, mm -hmm. Someone's saying uh, Malaka Tamilan was saying make an audio version. So if you want to listen to the audio version, you can actually do that on the Friendly Ex Muslim podcast. All of the episodes are there as well. So mm -hmm. say you just want the audio and you don't want to go to YouTube, you can just go to the podcast and all of the, the same content is there, but there's no visuals. So you'll just be mm -hmm. able to listen to it. The other option I was also thinking was we can take the clipping and stuff from the current series that we've already done and then just add additional or edit the current video series out where we need to or add in additional stuff. That is one option as well. Uh, but anyways, we'll let the poll run and figure this out later. Let's get back to the slides. So uh, we're going to be talking about the genius of Richard Dawkins and the selfish gene hypothesis and memes. A lot of people aren't actually aware that the word meme was invented by none other than Richard Dawkins in 1976 when he's discussing evolutionary biology and genes. Now, uh, why is Dawkins famous? The, the thing that put him on the map was in 1976, uh, he said that evolution doesn't actually occur at the level of the individual or the group, which was the predominant theory back then. He said that evolution occurs at the level of the genes. Uh, it is genes that are selected and it is genes that determine what traits get passed on and, and in the future. And the idea what he brings up is like, look around you and you'll see that this whole planet is infected by this uh, double helix molecule called DNA. It's replicating... It's making copies of itself. And what essentially happened is over time, uh, 
the molecule want to survive and envelop themselves in membranes and then in more complex bodies and so on and so forth. Uh, what ends up happening is the survival of, from the genes perspective is the genes are putting themselves in sleeves or bodies. And then once we die, our body dies, but the genes that we have, they spawn. Think of it this way. 99.9% of species that have ever existed uh, are extinct, okay? Uh, but the one thing that hasn't died on this planet at least for a few billion years is DNA. It is such a stable molecule, it is a fascinating molecule that has created these diverse uh, survival machines. Uh, so what you're starting to see from this perspective, your whole structure of morality, religion is a, completely changes. Hence, I highly recommend reading this book. And I'll read out this paragraph. Uh, individuals are not chromosomes too are shuffled into oblivion like hands of cards soon after they're dealt. But the cards themselves survive the shuffle. Sorry, uh, looks like we lost uh, Gondol. I'm going to read the slides. Individuals are not stable things. They are fleeting. Chromosomes, too, are shuffled into oblivion, like the hands of cards soon after they're dealt. But the cards themselves survive the shuffling. The cards are the genes. The genes are not destroyed by crossing over. They merely change partners and march on. Of course they march on. That's the business. They are replicators, and we are the survival machines. Oh, no, we lost the slides. Hold on, I do have access to the slides as well. Let me share that. Give me one second. And uh, just so you, in case you guys are wondering, it's um, bad weather where the gondola is. So unfortunately, give me a second. All right, so what I'm going to do is... Give me one second to share the slides. Okay, I don't have, oh, you're back. All right, so hello, yeah. Sorry yeah. about that, guys. It's just the uh, it's the weather that's just uh, messing up, and unfortunately, I can't. It's out of my control. But yeah, <laughs> you're like people are saying Allah's uh, is cursing the stream or something, right? Yeah. yeah. Can you um? So maybe what I'll we'll... do is I'll, yeah, give you the slides to share. Yeah, let me do that. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay, I got it. I'm just going to present slides. Okay. Did you... What I'm going to do is I'm going to turn off my videos because you guys are going to be looking at the slides anyways. So that will, like, lower the bandwidth and help as well. Okay. Can you guys still hear me, though? Yep. Okay, okay perfect. You. So... Um, did you share it directly from Google Drive? Is that what you did? Yes. Okay. Google Slides. Okay, one second. 
slides, Google Slides. Okay, and Islam. Okay, actually, could you share it while I try to get it uploaded on here? Because it's giving me a little bit of a hard time. Okay, okay, okay no problem. Uh, downloads. Okay, I think I got it. One second. Okay, I'll add yours for now till mine is done. Can you see it? Yep. Okay, okay. I think I, I think, think I have it. We're talking okay. about the genius of. Okay, I think we were talking yes. about uh, Richard Dawkins. Yes, and I don't know where I cut out, but basically, I was trying to tell people that um, that uh, life is actually, uh, if you view it uh, from the evolutionary perspective, what uh, Dawkins did, uh, he said that it's DNA that controls the evolution and the hereditary, not the individual or the group. And then he tells us a story that. Everything on this planet or every life form that has existed, 99.9 .9 different types of species are all extinct. But the one thing that hasn't died that is almost immortal for the history of our planet is the DNA uh, or the molecule, the replicator. So uh, he says something very interesting. Uh, they did not die out for they are past masters of the survival arts but do not look for them floating loose in the sea. They gave up that cavalier freedom long ago. Now they swarm in huge colonies safe inside gigantic lumbering robots, sealed off from the outside world, communicating with it by tortuous indirect routes, manipulating it by remote control. They are in you and in me. They created us, body and mind, and their preservation is the ultimate rationale for our existence. They have come a long way, those replicators. Now they go by the name of genes and VR, their survival machines. So this, uh, this specific thing, this specific idea of Richard Dawkins when he brought this up is so profound. It is one of the most profound ideas that I've come across because you now have to reimagine all of life. And once you get into this book, he talks about... Uh, how gene pools interact and how behaviors are actually a lot of times being controlled by genes and we are actually kind of almost like being pulled by the genetic strings like puppets but we are not aware of this uh it's very very fascinating uh but now we're going to get to something interesting uh what are memes so this is where we come to religion uh and this is where it gets interesting uh so Memes are units of information that just like genes go through what some people call as mimetic evolution, like uh, traits right along or uh, genotypes manifest in phenotypes within the DNA. The mechanism for memes to evolve is the human brain. So memes jump from brain to brain. And they evolve like that. Now, what are memes? Memes can be religions. Memes can be language, culture, social rules, politics, anything. It's a unit of information. 
in essence, to dumb it down further, what I would say is every animal expresses a behavior, okay? When an, and a monkey is, is, is talking to its family or, well, let's not talk, but interacting with its family, we'll still put it in the category of biology. But when humans, we are also animals, homo sapiens, when we start talking, we then classify our behaviors into subcategories, which is politics or religion. But at the end of the day, what we're doing is we're expressing a behavioral phenotype, uh, which is very essential to understand. Now, memes uh, are very fascinating because uh, they can take many shapes and they can induce a lot of different effects on the gene pool. Uh, all of this knowledge was absent from the human consciousness for most of our history, the genes, the memes, the evolutionary theory. So we're going kind of blind in the, for most of our history. Now, I want to read this out to you guys um, to get you a proper idea of what Dawkins was saying himself. We need a name for the new replicator, a noun that conveys the idea of a unit of cultural transmission or a unit of imitation. My meme comes from a suitable Greek root, but I want a monosyllable. So he just details how he came up with the word meme that he was trying to make rhyme with jeans and cream. Um, but anyways, uh, examples of memes are tunes, ideas, catchphrases, clothes, fashions, ways of making pots, building arches. Just as genes propagate themselves in the gene pool by leaping from body to body via sperm or eggs, so memes propagate themselves in the meme pool by leaping from brain to brain via a process which in the broad sense can be called imitation. This is interesting, this line here. When you plant a fertile meme in my mind, you literally parasitize my brain, turning it into a vehicle for the meme's propagation. In just the way that a virus may parasitize uh, the genetic mechanism of a host cell. Uh, this is very, very, very profound stuff. And what he's trying to get to is just like evolution has shaped our bodies and our thoughts, evolution has also shaped our cultures, our religions, everything we do. And a lot of it is being controlled by these invisible strings that we do not see. All righty. How's everybody doing so far? Is it okay? Is, it, uh, is everybody following? Is it too complex? So far, so good. So I'll just um, let me just let me just uh, give a layman's sort of explanation or, or reflection on what you said. So the idea is to think of something more generic than just genes. We're talking now something as as generic as an idea, and ideas can also pass on just like genes pass on. So what he's done is he's created a, a meta concept, right? Is that is that right? Would you would you say, agree with that? Yes, yes, in a way. Uh, so basically what he's saying is uh, memes are the information unit equivalency of genes. Mm, okay. That's what he's trying to say. All right. So everyone's uh, in. So far, so good. Should All right. Let's the next slide. Yeah. Next slide. Okay. I'm just going to watch from your stream now. Okay. okay. Yep. All righty. So once we realize that what genes are doing... Uh, before we go into Jared Diamonds, I want to mention something. So genes create memes that will favor the group, okay? A gene, a meme survival is dependent wholly and fully on its ability to infer a survivability enhancement to the gene, okay? 
memes cannot exist without genes. In fact, memes and genes are intertwined. Now, a lot of times what we need to understand is back in the day, imagine the hunter-gatherer type of society. You had tribes or tribelets, and the world was vastly, vastly different in terms of how people interacted, uh, the threats they were facing, the paranoia. People were more paranoid in that regard as well. Um, but what I want to focus on is the group evolution. How do tribes evolve and get selected? If, let's say, for example, you have a tribe that is very benign, very pacifist. If you were living 10,000 years ago, an outsider will come in and gobble over your resources if you were pacifist. Okay? So what needed to be done is natural selection will force you to evolve defense mechanisms or evolutionary tendencies where if you're living in an environment surrounded by violence, you have to be partly violent to survive in that situation as well. Now, when you start seeing the memes evolving in that context, you have to put uh, the context of the memes is the success of a meme does not depend if it's objectively true. A meme can be straight up about being a flat earther meme. Okay? The meme will start becoming promiscuous as long as it allows the beholder of the meme to have an evolutionary advantage. Okay? And that's what Dawkins was saying, that memes can infect minds like parasites, but it can then, in the later part we'll get to, they can also induce effects that mimic island gigantism and island-type dwarfism that we see in evolutionary biology as well. Anyways, with that aside, uh, uh, let's get to this guy. So this book, Guns, Germs, and Steel, one of my all-time favorite books by Jared Diamond. It's uh, one of the first three books <laughs> in the series. Uh, and this book is focused on the past 13,000 years. So this is not talking about the genetic evolution. Sorry, you cut yeah. off. This can you can you repeat that? The can mimetic repeat that? evolution of first. Yes, I. Uh, this book is very very. Can you, you uh, can you hear me? Yeah, the, can you repeat that last section again? All right. So uh, what I was trying to talk to you about was the guns, germs, and steel by Jared Diamond. He focuses on the mimetic aspect of our evolution, especially the past thirteen thousand years post agricultural revolution. And this is very, very fascinating because it is at this point where agriculture then starts driving forward some very uh, interesting trajectories into how we evolved and how we ended up with the religions we have now. Uh, so a few things that I wanted to touch base on is evolution of agriculture drove civilization. So agriculture evolution led into uh, language, led into more complex record keeping, written records. Uh, Agriculture then allowed for something that's very interesting. If you have your own food source at a stable place, agriculture will allow you to produce dense nutrition that can sustain a high amount or a high dense population. Okay. So the importance of this is that if you were a hunter-gatherer type, you don't have time out of your free time to go sit down and make inventions and stuff. Okay, you'll be too busy going getting food and all that. Uh, over time, when you start producing agriculture, you can feed a lot more people. You have surplus of food, which allows 
sedentary lifestyles and specialists do it well. When people are not always running after looking out for food, then they have time to sit down and make pots, make paintings and stuff like that. So that's one way how agriculture enabled us free time to make more things. The other interesting thing a lot of people forget about is agricultural animals and crowd diseases. Almost all of the first few plagues in human history started where? In the Fertile Crescent, which was what? The heart of the domestication of animals. And a lot of our diseases like rabies uh, and stuff, they jumped to us from uh, domestic animals. Now, why is that important? Because we're going to get to something that's going to be uh, mind-blowing where the Justinian plague and this exact thing played a very pivotal role in the expanse of Islam. Um, anyways, uh, so... Uh, Jared Diamond does in his book talk about how religion fits into the paradigm. He, in fact, mentions that religion is an institution, a furthering of institutionalization of uh, agriculture. Because what happens is once there's an agricultural boom, the population density goes up. But then you need to homogenize the population upon shared set of beliefs. If they're not united, they're going to fall apart. So hence, you utilize religion as uniting force. So you see that in, in cultures of the past, religious buildings also served as centers of uh, not just social, but also political gatherings. So rulers will use religion to homogenize society. Now, another important thing I'm going to bring up from an evolutionary biology perspective is think about it this way. If you have a group of 10 people, okay, and there's another group of 10 people, one group is an internal conflict where it is, its beliefs are not homogenized, okay? And then there's the other group, which is homogenized. It has the same set of beliefs. Who do you think is at more of an advantage of winning? The united group or the one that's fighting itself, right? So you'll see that evolution will always push you to have a united set of shared beliefs, and it will penalize any dissidents from the set, uh, the shared set of beliefs. What I'm trying to get to is how does the blasphemy law tie into this and where does the evolution of the blasphemy law come in? Now, uh, a lot of animals will also behave in this way where if you differ from the norms of the group, you will be eliminated, okay? But what I'm not trying to say is I'm not arguing for a blasphemy law in the modern world. What I'm trying to give people is an idea of how it would have evolved by evolutionary pressures, socio-dynamic pressures, okay? To give you a converse idea, uh, the, the importance of homogenizing society upon at least a certain set of shared ideas is very important. Uh, and this was even Muhammad was threatening this uh, social homogeneity of the Meccans. Hence, they didn't like it at first, and they were very against him. So that on its own... Uh, is a very, very interesting uh, facet of the evolution of social group dynamics uh, that we need to keep in mind. Uh, but anyways, uh, uh, Jared Diamond also uh, goes into the technological disparity and clashes where why did the Spanish or the Europeans decimate the, the Native Americans? Was it uh, because of crowd diseases, because of agriculture? Uh, why couldn't the colonizers colonize Africa or India, but were able to colonize North America? So these kind of factors we get into is very, very uh, 
very, very fascinating. Anyways, uh, I would say this book is essential to gain a critical understanding of why do certain cultures or societies overpower one another and how those events from thousands of years ago have still shaped us today. Uh, in short, Europe's colonization of Africa had nothing to do with differences between European and African peoples themselves, as white racists assume. Rather, it was due to accidents of geography and biogeography, and particularly to the continent's different areas, axes, and suits of wild plants and animal species. That is, different historical trajectories of Africa and Europe stem ultimately from differences in real estate. What he's trying to say here is, People in North America didn't have horses. They're not native to that continent. So when thousands of years of evolution and horses came with the Europeans, Native Americans were like, whoa, what's this? There's a lot of factors that aren't people-specific, but environment-specific. For example, the same group in history will get uh, split into two and end up on two different islands. One island is rich in metals. The other is rich is only made up of coral reefs. So 500 years later, what you see is one set of the same initial tribe has developed much more advanced technology based on metals, and the other one is still stuck with coral reefs and wooden sticks. So these kind of nuances, when you start to understand, are very, very fascinating. Um, uh, anyways, uh, let's take any uh, questions or any other discussion points before we move forward. All right. Samir, do you have anything to add? Nope. <laughs> All righty. So let's go to the next slide. All right. So another interesting thing, and I want to bring this up, is a lot of people do not realize how crowd diseases or animals have shaped us. So I'm going to bring up an interesting fact. I believe the cow was uh, domesticated in two different places individually, like two different times in history. One was in India, and I think one was in Europe. Uh, but there's a reason why a lot of uh, anthropological societies, older societies, would worship the cow because it provided sustenance to the community. So worshiping and protecting the cow as a sacred animal makes sense from an evolutionary perspective because you're protecting your sustenance and food source. So that's why you'll see that these kind of trends and things come out of evolution. Now, uh, a technological disparity. Uh, so the what happened in North America is, is quite shocking. Uh, like you can see, cumulative mortalities of these previously unexposed peoples from Eurasian germs range from 50 to 100%. For instance, the Indian population of Hispaniola declined from around 8 million when Columbus arrived in 1492 to zero by 1535. And a lot of times this guy will point out in the books that North Americans were not killed by the, by the steel or the guns, but it was the germs that killed them. And you will see that these germs will pop up initially in the Justinian plague in rela relation to Islam in a little bit. Anyways, but when Cortez's next onslaught came, the Aztecs were no longer naive and fought street by street with utmost tenacity. What gave the Spaniards a decisive advantage was smallpox, which reached Mexico in 1520 with one infected slave arriving from Spanish Cuba. 
The resulting epidemic proceeded to kill nearly half of the Aztecs, including their emperor. Aztec survivors were demoralized by the mysterious illness that killed Indians and spared Spaniards, as if advertising the Spaniards' invincibility. Uh, by 1618, Mexico's initial population of about 20 million had plummeted to about 1.6 million. So what you see is this is not just uh, the white people coming from Europe and just killing them with their sores, the diseases. Because Europe at that time had had big city centers and domestication for thousands of years before the natives had, Europeans had evolved crowd diseases that had never existed in North America. Anyway, so what he's trying to say here is measles and TB evolved from diseases of cattle, influenza for disease of pigs, and smallpox, possibly from a disease of camels. The Americas had very few native domesticable species from which humans could acquire such diseases. Uh, another thing interesting is in Africa, you see that the, a lot of the wild animals are not domesticable, the natural species there. Uh, so there's the, they couldn't domesticate. So despite there being multiple different points on the planet which fit the fertile crescent or the, the Mediterranean climate, it was only one spot that sparked it. Uh, anyways. Another thing I wanted to point out that is at the bottom here is Jared Diamond focuses on this literacy. Why were the European colonizers so effective in taking, spreading over all across the world was literacy. They could preserve information in a more precise, accurate format and then pass it on to other people versus oral traditions. Okay. Now, the interesting thing is agriculture started 13,000 years ago. Language wasn't invented until like 3,500 to 4,500 years ago. Okay, this is still 3000 years before Islam. When we understand the cognitive importance of language uh, and the effect it has had on the trajectory of evolution of different tribes, the idea that Allah, out of his whole wisdom, chose an illiterate guy who couldn't read or write as his prophet is a blunder that cannot be forgiven. Okay, and you will get to something very interesting in a little bit and how it played out. Uh, but yeah, let's get, let's go to the next slide. If, uh, so, if you have any questions, mm -hmm. do you think that, you know, how the, the Arabian society had, you know, this memorization going on and the poetry and all that, um, but they didn't memorize things as long as the Quran typically, right? There's probably no, no need to do that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Muhammad comes along and he's, you know, narrating things you know ad hoc as they're coming about people are scrambling to write them on you know like parchment if they keep actually i don't think they even got parchment it's mm -hmm. mostly like bones shoulder bones of animals and whatever they could get now the only way to really make this survive and we know even from the hadith that there were times where this this was disastrous was to to enforce mass memorization and mm -hmm. so he artificially try to preserve the meme of the Quran. Would you say that that's an... That's, that's a good. very, very interesting way because you can think mm -hmm. of it. If, if this prophet had realized that he could just get it written down and the importance of language and written things, he could have preserved the Quran in a much better format and we wouldn't have the holes in the narrative <laughs> and the whole Osman burning the copies of the Quran and <laughs> fighting of the companions. But yeah, that's a very, very valid point. Like yeah. that itself, like think about it this way. Had the... Had Muhammad been literate the quality of the quran would have been much better 
the lots of different trajectories would have been taken of the preservation of the Quran and all that. With that being said, uh, we have to remember that not all oral traditions are 100% fabricated. Yes, there is some truth to them because predominantly when you look at our history, we've been speaking for hundreds of thousands of years, but we invented written language only 4,500 years ago. Right, but oh, not but not with Badim, basically the with the expectation of like what the Quran is at. Mm-hmm. The ultimate with Badim, literal word of God, letter for letter being preserved. That is not you know, technically feasible to the extent that is being claimed by the Quran, right? Mm-hmm. No, no. I mean, if you already know the uh, holes in the narrative, <laughs> disproves that. So for details on that, you can go to the specific thing. I mean, <laughs> we wouldn't have the 7 or the 10 or the 14 Qur'at if it was preserved properly. Right. Uh, Imagine uh, in an alternate universe where they actually had writing, Muhammad could write, he didn't write, and he told his followers to write it. And then we had Muslims claiming... It's been preserved miraculously by pen and paper. <laughs> Imagine <laughs> that world. Right? Exactly. <laughs> but nonetheless, I mean, at least what we can say is that uh, Muhammad's own uh, in promotion of literacy, the Iqra in the Quran, is still at least somewhat in a positive light, even though for the Arabs, I mean, there were a lot more intelligent people in his community or more... Uh, literate people in his community at that time that saw through his his BS right away. But like I said, it's not about the meme itself being true. It depends on the intelligence of who you're imposing the meme upon. If there's dumb people, they will... For example, and again, take democracy. If you give an uneducated group the power to vote, they will elect a person just like them who's equally uneducated into power. <laughs> You know, so it's a circle. Uh, yeah. But anyways, let's go to the next slide. And now and we're going to... That's a, the whole rise of populist leaders we have, right? Mm-hmm. People that... Like, leaders that say what people want to hear, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the other thing is, like, if you look at politics, like you can actually have people based on merit working to solve actual issues. But no, it's not about that. Because to get votes, you got to dumb yourself down to the level of the voter base. Okay, and this is very important. <laughs> All right, but let's let's get to the next one. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. How did Islam begin? So there's actually a whole paper written about it, and this is something that I kept telling. Crowd diseases, uh, plagues, like we mentioned in the past where the North Americans were just decimated by the, the new diseases they hadn't encountered before. In this situation... Islam was advantaged by its nomadic lifestyle and the harsh environment of the desert wouldn't allow these kind of crowd diseases to evolve. Plus, the Arabian Peninsula didn't have huge uh, population or dense cities which would allow the transmission of these uh, these diseases and mutations. Because the more number of people you have, the more vessels you're providing for the virus or the bacteria to mutate and make uh, different forms of attack to kill the population. All right. So here uh, we see something very important. He says on the top, right, uh, the rapid expansion from the year 622 uh, of the Hijra, uh, the rapid growth coincided with the spread of the bubonic plague in the Middle East. Although a first epidemic had been documented in the year 570, 
interesting. So there are some academic articles that I did include in the Epileptic Prophet series uh, that mentioned that <clears throat> when Abraha came with his uh, elephants, he brought the first instance of plague with him. Elephants weren't uh, the norm back in the Arabian Peninsula. In fact, I mean, in a desert environment, they would pass away. Uh, so that was new. And that's something, like I said, the 